newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. The Media Project offers you a half hour of commentary and analysis. And on our best days, some insight into what's been going on in the news media. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. Thank you for joining us. Uh, here with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. You doing okay today, Alan? I am, but I know who the boss is on this program. It's you, Rex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Rosemary Arameo is here, investigative journalist, professor, etc. Rosemary, how are you? I'm well, thank you. That's good. We'll get more uh, insight into that shortly here. You've been in a jet ski recently. This is very good. And Barbara Lombardo is here, a longtime editor of the Saratogian, executive editor of the Troy Record, and uh, now teaching at UAlbany. You're doing all right there, Barbara? Hanging in there. Happy to be here today. Well, yes, absolutely. We're all glad to be around. Yep. Making us the closeted or the quarantined anyway, members of this team, and that's why we apologize to our audience for the sound, but we'll do the best we can here. Here's a little bit of fact. You know that we recently had the hottest day on record in the Arctic. I bring that up because there are so many big stories that our listeners may have missed that. And I'm, I'm taken by an essay that we read this past week in Columbia Journalism Review by a very bright young man named John Alsup, actually a Brit who writes about the global media, pointing out that there is simply so much news that it puts such a challenge on journalists. Some massive stories come along that we hardly are able to see. And I just want to read this quote and then see what you all think of this. He quotes a techno-sociologist, Zeynep Tufekci, who wrote in The Atlantic that the media's failure to raise an early alarm about the fact that a pandemic was coming reflected its inability to think about complex systems and their dynamics. Tufekci wrote, tipping points, phase transitions, that is water boiling or freezing, and cascades and avalanches when a few small changes end up triggering massive shifts are all examples of nonlinear dynamics in which the event doesn't follow simple additions and its impacts. So how do we as journalists cope with this amazing onslaught of news? How do we possibly handle it? I love that article, too. I'm glad that you uh, kind of have assigned it to listeners to take a look at it. And it goes along with the complaint we get all the time about the media didn't cover or the media didn't pay attention to or the media covered this rather than that, whatever topic it is that the speaker is most interested in. And in this article, you see the dilemma to just keep up with daily events is almost beyond the capability of an industry that's been terribly downsized. So if you're following, say, coronavirus, the Me Too, uh, I'm sorry, Me Too, okay, a global warming and police brutality and the protests involving all that and the economy, that's five amazing top stories, each one of which could fill a newspaper or a broadcast. So how then do you cover everything else? It's two things. One is it demands an audience that has an appetite for all of this and will support it and then the journalists to cover it. 
or the experts who can write for a mass audience so that it can be covered that way. And uh, I think that the, we do the best we can, but you are going to continue to hear complaints about what we don't cover or what we don't cover well enough for a really long time. Alan, what do you think we're missing? Well, look, we've discussed this many times. We have a group of distinguished editors of whom you are one, and Rosemary, each of us, know that we have to cover stuff because it is of greatest interest to our people. And the big problem is that our people don't know. I think our listeners, our readers, we have discussed this on WMC, by the way, this very story, of course. But they don't know that this could be the end of human civilization because of the polarized caps melting. And because they don't know, the editor is sitting there and saying, what do I want today, Donald Trump or the polarized caps? And you get the Donald Trump thing. Although I have to say, we have discussed it at WMC. I have done a commentary on it and that kind of thing because it is out there. It's not as if no one is printing it. Right. Barbara, can you bring some insight into how an editor would think about this kind of stuff? And before she does, I want to just apologize to Barbara for not listing her among the distinguished editors on our board. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> on our program. All is forgiven for the moment. Okay, so I, I guess I would say that the editors need to think about the long-term stories where you're reporting things, as uh, one of you alluded to, as news is happening, it's sort of like a drip, drip, drip of stories, but it's part of a bigger picture. And it's incumbent on editors to then tie it all together and explain the bigger picture for readers to understand. And then I think packaging, presentation and packaging is something that we in the media could do a better job of so that instead of a, a huge long story that people may not get past the headline and the subhead and the first three paragraphs, that we need things in shorter, biteable, readable chunks where there's Q&As so that people can understand the situation better. And then the packaging and presentation, I think things need to be available online through our websites, which people maybe should have to pay for, that people can go back and see the news. Oh, what's going on with global warming? And some sites are very good about that. You know, you're very good about that at the Times Union, Rex, with regional news and statewide news. You can click on something and then you're going to see long-lasting stories and explanations of bigger topics. So I think we need to make the news accessible, readable, and keep it up there. I listened for years to editors and designers talk about packaging and chopping up the news so people could digest it. And I don't buy it. I don't buy it anymore. I didn't then at the time, and I don't now. I think that we're just uh, taking the responsibility onto the media when a whole lot of this is up to citizens. If you're going to be a citizen of the United States, the time of Trump, with impending crises of all sorts, you got to read complicated stuff. you got to read a lot of it. you got to look for it. And I don't think it just if you, if you make a pretty package in a newspaper or you do a broadcast with jazzy people introducing the material that I don't think that makes a difference. It isn't going to turn Oh, I sound society. like the old school marm on that one because I we've am. been talking about this for years and years. I think we need both. The Atlantic is a great example of a publication that has long, wonderful, comprehensive, in-depth pieces. But I think that it is arrogant of editors to say, if you care about being a good citizen, you should read these stories. And I can remember editors in the pre computer days where we'd say, hey, we should put a tagline at the end of the story about where they can turn for more information. And I remember one editor in my newsroom saying, it's their job to go find that if they're really interested in about it. We don't have to baby them. And it was like, you got to be kidding okay. me. Well, but the fact is that that argument that you're deciding is years old. We are now in the age of video and all kinds of packaging. Right. Well, that would be part of the not an issue. They still are not reading this stuff. 
So no, I, that simple chunk business, no, I don't get it. And the and the Atlantic and books come out and people read those. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of our media are out of date and that's why people don't read it. But it is not just dependent on journalists to get complex materials and make it all interesting and exciting and then have it compete with news of the, the latest celebrities. That is really competition. You're not going to get them to read anyway. At the risk of sounding like the, uh, well, can't we all get along? I do think that there's a, a middle space there that, that where you, you actually both have the right idea. And the digital media enables us to do this. You notice the Times these days, for example, will give you a summary of a story, about a 200-word summary of an important story, and then you'll have a 2,000-word piece that carries it on if you want to read more of that. And I think we kind of expect that to be the way that we go forward. The difficulty is that even in that context, there's so many elements that I just think readers lose their perspective on what's important because so much is important. I mean, look, we haven't even mentioned in this conversation, we're talking about global warming and we're talking about coronavirus and so on. We haven't even mentioned the controversy over Russia allegedly paying the Taliban-linked militants to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Huge story. Did the president react? Did he not? Did the president blow it off? Or did he even know? But that layers on top of so much coverage that we have to have about 50,000 new cases a day of coronavirus and about Black Lives Matter. And there's just so much. I guess it seems to me that in journalism, it's hard for us to signal to people what's important. Here's a fascinating fact that the New York Times, if you count the old-fashioned print version, the Times has already run 33 Banner A1 headlines. Banner headline means stretching all the way across the six columns of the front page. That 33 is more than it ran in all of 2016, substantially more than the election year average of 10 before election day, 33 already. So that means that there is just an awful lot of news that at least some editors are saying to readers, wow, pay attention to this. It's important. And you kind of run the risk of insulating readers, of making them almost inured to it by the volume constantly being up. Contextualize this. What percentage of Americans, for example, read a newspaper? You guys know the answer to this, I'm sure. What percentage of people watch the news at night? What percentage of people have any idea what's going on in all of this? And then we talk about what the editor's responsibility is. So back to what Rosemary said is it lies on the people to do the work, but I'm not so sure they get it, and I'm not so sure we can stop with that. I'm especially concerned by the criticism that we don't forecast news that's coming. We didn't warn people that there would be a pandemic. But think about that. If you're a science reporter, you could quote who and scientists perhaps working in China, if you had those kind of sources saying this is a possibility, this could be a pandemic like we've never seen before. But others say because there's no clear-cut answers at the beginning of of news events. And so you can't say we're all going to die. That's a headline that would get lots of uh, attention and people would (laughs) – We're all going to die. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, but we we can't write that. We would not write. Yeah, we can't responsibly write that. And so it it is very, I think, difficult for for uh, the news media to give warning of events coming up. Now, as soon as they happen, we can be ready for it and jump all over it. And I believe that we have done that with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Taking climate change as an example has, for years now, been doing some of it piecemeal and some of it, you know, long term or 
you know, looking at the big picture, I think we've done a good job with that. Would you agree? If you look at the media as a whole, yes. If you're looking at a reader who looks at one TV station and one newspaper and maybe looks online if there's a sexy Kardashian story and then has led to other stories, they're not going to have a full picture of it. And the full picture for a long time was cloudy. There's, there's ambiguity in covering a story fully, and readers don't want that. Those simple chunks you want, they want definitive, this is what's going to happen. And journalists don't work that way. They shouldn't work that way. You know, it, when we do media criticism, which is part of what this show is about, it's always about you know what we should have covered, what we actually did cover, which is a rather subjective matter. And that raises this other huge issue that we've been talking about a lot now in journalism, and that is what has come to be over the last couple of years properly called the view from nowhere, that is the effort at objectivity in journalism. We talked about that last week. There's always some subjectivity in deciding what you should cover and what you can't cover, what you have enough resources, either enough reporters or enough space in print or enough time on the air to be able to cover. But what's really hard now is separating the urgent from the important because so much of it seems so important. Some years ago, 15 years ago, when I was early in my editorship at the Times Union, I gave the staff a memo saying, specifically with the issue of climate change, it is not appropriate for us to give false equivalents to those climate change denialists who are failing to recognize science. Our responsibility is to give people truth, and that recognizes the reality of climate change. Meaning that if you are a climate change denier, you're not going to feel that the Times Union has been giving you a fair bit of coverage. That's fine, I think, because the goal is to give people truth, not to just do a he said, she said. But that is part of the difficulty also, because there's so much out there that you're making subjective decisions at a certain point. Isn't that right, Alan? You're making some decisions based upon what you think is important and what people need to see. Absolutely. And I think that that's crucial in understanding what we're talking about here. You have to put out an edition. You guys all know this far better than I. And you have to know what the headline is going to be. And it's very subjective, but you say, okay, the world is going to end because of the polarized caps melting versus some idiocy that Trump is engaged in that particular day. You hold your hand up into the wind and you say, okay, which of these is going to interest our readers more? What would they have to have, the polarized caps, or what they want, which is this Trump guy is really a danger. So it seems to me it's subjective, but also if you put a bunch of editors in a paper in a, in a room and said, we're going to give you scenarios, each of you tell us what you would do in this particular case, I think your editors would all be pretty much on the same side. Hmm. Which I guess is one of the reasons, if that's the case, if the editors all are making the same judgments, I guess that's the uh, good argument in favor of making newsrooms more diverse because you don't want to have groupthink, right? You want to have some diversity in the media so that you're getting a lot of different stories there. At the risk of being the peacemaker between you two, I think that yeah. you're both right, and there's a middle ground that editors are trying to figure out what people need to know, want to know, and ought to know. And what Rex is saying is that you need diversity of opinion, and you need different people in the newsroom so that you are not missing news. But in general, wouldn't you say that we would trust mainstream editors to be thinking about you know, what are the most important topics that ought to be addressed? And, and you're right, we might be missing things or our approach might not be quite, as we're learning in the Black Lives Matter movement, that we need more diverse newsrooms. Yes. But 
and then what about the uh, the digital uh, brands, the the digital outlets that are the biggest? I'm thinking of Facebook, for example. We are right now in the midst of a pretty big boycott of Facebook by some companies, a boycott of advertisers on social media with Facebook as the primary target. And that is because marketers are, let's say, uneasy about how Facebook has been handling misinformation and hate speech, and in particular, how permissive Facebook has been about allowing Donald Trump to use its platform and say whatever he wants to. This is a huge trend, isn't it? It is. I was shocked at the millions and millions of dollars that they were talking about losing and, and the number of companies that were boycotting, which was, I thought, good. Rosemary, is this appropriate? It's part of the same trend we're seeing with corporations who are the bad guy, the boogeyman in, in the eyes of many, certainly progressive Democrats. But now they're stepping up to do actions that we used to expect from government. And this campaign against misinformation and hate speech is one of them. Environmental action is being taken by companies that the government is trying to roll back on. Anything along those lines, I don't trust it. I don't want them to be the guardians of our society. But I think it's certainly a good trend, and it also probably is good business because people do appreciate it. So far, nearly 100 advertisers have joined these boycotts. Uh, originally, it came with pressure from uh, NAACP and the Anti-Defamation League. But now, I mean, you're getting uh, brands that spend tens of millions of dollars a year uh, with Facebook. Uh, Adidas, uh, Best Buy, Chobani, uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, these are now pulling their uh, Diageo, the, uh, the big uh, distiller, um, distributor actually of uh, spirits. Th these companies are pulling their ads off Facebook in response to Facebook being unwilling to exercise its editorial control. Um, we've complained about this for years, that uh, Facebook has built up a huge audience without taking any responsibility for the content, uh, simply swiping our content and uh, putting it up there. And uh, this is uh, now presenting quite an interesting challenge uh, to Facebook. Will they respond and uh, exercise a little more editorial control over, over their platform? We may need Barbara the umpire to adjudicate this between you and me. But I just want to say, Rex, it's probably important to remember that newspaper editors, such as yourself, have been complaining for a long time, not only about Facebook and its editorial policies, but that they're eating your lunch in terms of the money that comes into these places. So therefore, I just want to raise that word of caution for our listeners that, you know, we all have <laughs> our own conflicts of interest. Here's an example of where... Our points of view come across in, in what we say and what we report and how we tell the story. So your choice of verbs, Alan, is to say, oh, Rex, you've been complaining about this forever and how it relates to the news business, which is an accurate complaint. But why the choice of the word complaint as if we're whining about it when really we're pointing out, we're alerting the public, we're saying it's not bad to point that out. It's not whining. And maybe you don't mean to come across that way, Alan. No, I do. Oh, yeah, I think you do. No, yeah. I absolutely. <laughs> That it is a complaint. But I don't we all think agree. You, no, not really. You did not hear me using the word wine. That's the first thing. And that's no, something that... complaint. Yeah, I think complaint. complaint is a legitimate word in this case, because anybody who's been listening to this program over the years knows whether he's right or wrong, or whether you're right or wrong, that 
people from the media, newspapers included especially, are complaining that they're losing revenue to Facebook. That's a complaint. And, well, these are two separate been... issues. One is the economics of the news business, and we've discussed that a lot. But what we're really talking about now is deliberate disinformation going on to Facebook and what to do about it. And Mark Zuckerberg is acting like, oh, I'm, I'm not a publisher, nothing I can do about it. And yet he has his own rules in place that are violated every day by, for example, some of the Trump tweets that are filled with hate and they don't get tagged or pulled down. So there is a reckoning coming. And people are leaving. Many people are leaving Facebook because they're disgusted. I'm an addict, and even I have to consider it. And now corporations are involved, which hurt him even more. This is a good thing, and I don't know what the conclusion will be. I'm a free press person, but social media is not exactly just free press. There are checks and balances and verification in the mainstream media that do not exist on Facebook. And if that's the case, then maybe there needs to be some more rules. I don't want it to be by government, but that might be better than what we had in 2016. Yeah, I was disheartened to read about how dishonest Facebook leadership has been with the press. They basically lie or hide the truth. They are not open as we hoped that they would be. There's a remarkable article that Barbara's talking about that talks about reporters who have dealt with stonewalling and lies, how Facebook handles issues that being a reporter who covers Facebook, which has, is such an influential organization in our society, is quite frustrating because Facebook tries in every way it can to squelch reporting that might in any way be critical. And of course, I guess that's what every major corporation does, but Facebook has, I think you're saying, a day of reckoning that's coming for this kind of behavior. Yeah. It's another layer of the problems with Facebook on top of, as Rosemary rightly points out, the disinformation, misinformation that they are allowing put out. We are U.S.-centric, but Facebook was responsible for prejudice that led to genocide against the Rohingya in Burma. And case after case where hateful and incendiary messages are allowed to stay on and to be spread, it does need regulation. I'm sorry, this is not the same as a newspaper printing both sides or many sides of the same issue. This is raw incitement to violence and disruption. Well, what do you think? Are we? Uh, don't you think that the media world changed when the uh, Federal Communications Commission um, formally abandoned the Fairness Doctrine, which required uh, uh, over-the-air outlets to uh, present multiple sides of an issue? Uh, that is what actually led to the rise of talk radio and the AM band, uh, which uh, really laid the groundwork for Fox News, which laid the groundwork for all kinds of um, shocking media uh, presentation. Maybe the toothpaste is out of the tube. Maybe we can't go back to a way where there was some regulation by government of fairness. But you have to think that there needs to be some exploration. I think you're right, Rosemary, that there needs to be some way for us to get our arms as a society around these powerful, privately held institutions that are making billionaires, multi-billionaires out of their owners, but that seem to take no responsibility for the validity of the content they allow hate speech. The havoc that they wreak. You know, I, I, I teach that, and so I've gone back and looked at that withdrawal of the fairness doctrine. And of course, it's all well-intentioned, as are so many things that lead to negative consequences. 
that it was supposed to open up the conversation. It was supposed to let in really unpopular and extremist ideas, and we're grown up enough to handle it. But that's not what happened. It's had a the effect that we see now that there's no check, there's no veracity, there's no responsibility. Stuff gets out, and Zuckerberg goes, oh, it's not my fault. I'm not the publisher. And the people who are publishing it say, we printed what we thought was the truth, and here we are. So I actually still do applaud those companies that are pulling their ads and putting pressure on Facebook to do it differently. This is a different matter. I think we need to make it clear from uh, that is saying that Facebook needs to take responsibility for its content. We're not saying that objectionable content or stuff that we don't like uh, needs to be censored. For example, Fox News, which has significantly downplayed the coronavirus, seemingly to be in denial as states uh, are reporting uh, this surge in viruses. That's irresponsible on Fox News's part, but that doesn't mean that they should be regulated and told you have to report this, right? It does mean, however, that they should accept responsibility in the marketplace for their inattention to facts. These matters are related, but they're not the same. That's a really good point, Rex. And if only the viewers of Fox News felt that same way. They're not getting the true <laughs> news. They're not getting the full news. They're not getting the coronavirus news, and they keep on watching. I would like to say that Rosemary, who I adore, is, you know, very opinionated. And she is on our roundtable program, and we love having her there. Rex, does this mean that if Rosemary's on, we have to get some antediluvian to sit across the table from her and say, no, Rosemary, you're wrong each time? That's why I think they got rid of this rule. Now, sure, Fox is a big offender in my mind, too. Nevertheless, it affects public radio and everybody else. So I think it's a can of worms. Yeah, I you're think that's exactly why, right. I do think that is why the the broadcast uh, or the fairness rule was was eliminated was such a problem for broadcasters to stay in line with it. But the blanket throwing out of that principle has resulted in a new problem that we see in Facebook. Of course, there's new technology that has extended the problem. But so, what what are the possible solutions? Government regulation, which would be horrible personal responsibility. That may, would mean Zuckerberg and his executives would have to act differently or pressure from the marketplace, which means consumers, both us as individuals and corporations, put pressure on Facebook to do something different. And I, I, I can at least see the beginnings of that happening, and I hope it will we carry through on it. I think I may have to get off Facebook. Oh, uh, no. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you haven't done that you were on a jet ski. <laughs> exactly. You haven't done it yet, Rosemary. All right. We're out of time. I hate to call it into this, but uh, we're going to have to leave our listeners with that. Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you for joining us today on The Media Project. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.